Thank you, Daryl, Tina, and Kendra. Keith, it's your turn. This is going to sound odd, but I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be in verse 27 through 31. A few months ago, um, when we started working through 1 Corinthians, I, I typically, for my sermons, have them mapped out where we're going to go, what we're going to do, and a general idea of each sermon about a year in advance. And so when I mapped out 1 Corinthians, I mean, over a year ago now, well over a year ago, um, I knew that this text of Scripture was going to hit around Christmas time, but I, I don't hold myself to always preaching those texts. Sometimes I'll take a, uh, a section of Scripture and split it and do two sermons. Sometimes I'll take some and put them together. Far more often than not, I end up taking sections and, and doing two sermons out of them, which is what happened with this particular sermon. And then last week when we had the weavers here, uh, the missionaries that came up from Papua New Guinea, and it was a blessing to hear them and their stories and, and all the work that they're doing for the Lord there, and we can continue to pray for them um, as they head back that way at the end of, of January, I realized this is the text we landed on for Christmas Eve. And so I thought, well, maybe I should... You know, just do a one-off sermon, um, something on the incarnation or something about all the prophecies that have been fulfilled with Christ when he was born or a text that would kind of fit the more Christmassy context that we find ourselves in. But then I started studying and started reading and really looked at the passage and I thought, I think this is actually a really good Christmas passage. And the reason why it's such a good Christmas passage and why I kind of felt that tension is because you and I and, and, and our culture in general has done a great disservice to the Christmas season. We've decided that Christmas has to be perfect, that the house has to be decorated exactly the right way, that it has to be clean all of the time, that you have to have your children dressed to a T, and that your children also have to be clean all the time, that your husbands have to be groomed, that wives have to have festive and cute clothes, that your presents have to be wrapped nice and neatly, and they can't be wrapped like a chimpanzee wrapped it, but like nice and neat with crisp edges and nice tape and a bow that's on top of it, all for children just to rip off and throw away and never appreciate, that your stockings have to be hung by the chimney with care and also with an eye for the aesthetics of your household and the right colors. We've made this Christmas season the things that we have to do or else the whole season is ruined in our mind. Think with me about the very first Christmas. Mary is not worried if her carpet is vacuumed or not. She's not worried about the tree being lit, decorated nicely in the corner, if the ornaments had been messed with or not. She's not worried about her mom or her mother-in-law judging her on if her house is cleaned and picked up or not cleaned and not picked up to their ability. She's not worried about if her house smells like and tastes like baked goods that we should have at Christmas time. None of those things were on the first Christmas with Mary and Joseph's mind. Instead, what we see and what's a helpful reminder for us at the first Christmas is there's something that this passage we come to is sometimes the most extraordinary, sometimes the most miraculous things in our life come to us in the most mundane and the most ordinary of circumstances. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27 through 31. We'll pray and then we'll walk through the text just like we always do. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? 
Do all do miracles? Do all have the gift of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text of Scripture and for this passage that we come to. God, I'm grateful that we come to it today. On December 24th, when we celebrate Christmas Eve, when we celebrate your incarnation, Jesus, when you put on flesh, As the song we sang said, Veiled in flesh, incarnate thee, hail the immortal deity. God, help us to remember what Christmas is supposed to be about. Help us to understand this text of Scripture, which seems so odd and so different for what Christmas should be, but is absolutely important in our understanding of life. Help us to grow in you. Help us to learn about you. Help us to trust in you. Give us ears to hear and shape our hearts. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. So let's pause there. All of chapter 12 that Paul has been talking about has been talking about these spiritual gifts that have taken place within the church. And, and much of the rest of Corinthians is, is delving through and sorting out all of these various spiritual gifts that take place. And so a lot of what Paul has been talking about is how these gifts fit into the body of Christ, which is the church. That's what Paul's told us is no one has all of the gifts and no one has none of the gifts. If you're a believer in Christ, you have gifts given to you by God. You don't have all of them. You don't have none of them. That's the point. We have to come together. We're a body of Christ, each individual members of it. If you remember, Paul talked about what would you do if everybody is an eyeball in the body of Christ? It would look really weird. You could see what's going on, but you could do nothing about it. What if everybody was a foot? What if everybody was an ear? And so Paul walks through those different examples when he talks about Christ being the body. And the point was God has equipped you with gifts to use in the context of the local church for the glory of God and for your good if you're a Christian. There's one body. And God has arranged all of these parts according to his will. The body of Christ is the church, both universal and local, right? So the universal church is this belief. It's all Christians, past, present, and future, stretched all throughout time. Everybody who's ever been or will be a believer is involved in the universal church of Christ. But then from that, we have these local manifestations of the universal church that take place scattered around. And so there's unity in the diversity of the local church. We're not all exactly the same. We could praise the Lord for that, can't we? We can rejoice with our brothers and sisters who have good news and celebrate good news. We can weep with brothers and sisters who have things to weep about. This is how we love one another. One of my favorite things, and we're coming up to it next week, is 1 Corinthians 13 is the wedding passage. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. We think that passage is about marriage, and what Paul is telling you is, no, it's about your local church. We'll get there. So we love one another, which is something the Corinthian church was struggling with. Look at the next verse, verse 28. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping administration in various kinds of tongues. So what Paul's given us here is a list of spiritual gifts that take place within the church. He's already given us a list of spiritual gifts earlier in 1 Corinthians 12. And one of the most apparent things in this list is they're not identical. 
He gives us other lists in other places in the New Testament. What we see is none of the lists are exactly identical, that certain lists have certain things that Paul emphasizes, and other lists have other things that Paul emphasizes. And so what we see is that these lists that Paul gives us are not all inclusive. These are not a list of every single spiritual gift that takes place within the church. This is a list of spiritual gifts that these hard-headed Corinthians needed to hear. And there's a reason Paul lists them the way he lists them. See, these gifts are supernatural, meaning that you and I do not have them as talents. We do not have them as abilities. They are things given to us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Everybody has one, at least one, if you're a Christian, and nobody has none if you're a Christian. And what we'll see is the gift, different gifts are given in different measures, and they're given in different degrees, right? Some people have a high administration gift, others have less, and they kind of overlap in some areas, But the point is, you should not be exalting yourself because of the gifts that you have. They're gifts given to you. Not because of how great you are or how great you think you are or how much you deserve it or don't deserve it. They're gifts given to you by God, by His sovereignty, by His will, not to elevate you, but to elevate Christ, to make much of Jesus. They're cause us to humble ourselves. And so Paul uses this list, and he does a distinct thing. There's, there's really two lists when you look at it. You have, he says, first, second, third, when he's describing, like, these offices that take place within the church. And then he has this second list of things that take place, which are more gifts. So first, second, and third, he says there's, there's apostles first, there's prophets second, and then there's teachers third. These are foundational gifts or offices given to the church, and all of these gifts play an essential role in establishing the church, especially when Corinthians is being written. You and I have the luxury of having Bibles bound together and available for us at a ready, but the Corinthians may not have. And a lot of the early church did not. The, the apostles would write a letter. They'd know it was an inspired by God. They would send the letter off, and it would be copied by hand and sent to other churches. And so by the time you end up with a bound 66 books of the Bible, it's well past after Jesus has died. It's several 50, 100 years after Christ has been there. And so what, what Paul is telling us, what Jesus has done, is he has given us first apostles as the foundation of this church. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says this, So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Did you hear it? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Later in Ephesians 4.11, Paul says this, And he gave himself some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. He lists four groups there. So this is a consistent thing that Paul has been saying throughout all of his letters. First off, you have apostles. So what is an apostle? The word means sent ones. So in a sense... Every Christian is an apostle. We're all sent ones from Christ if we're believers in Jesus Christ. However, there is an office of apostle, capital A apostle, that is reserved for a select few. You had to have seen the resurrected Jesus, and you had to have been commissioned by Jesus to be a capital A apostle. This was an office that God used in the early church to give authority to the church as it's spreading and as it's growing and as it's encountering all sorts of various hurdles and struggles. The Bible, the New Testament, was written by the apostles or people closely linked to the apostles. 
So as the word of God spreads, we see this office coming along, and we see many of the miraculous gifts taking place. But as the word is bound together, as the Bible is, is put together, and as it is distributed amongst the churches, what we see happening are some of these offices and some of the miraculous gifts beginning to cease. And we know that the office of capital A Apostle ceases. Just remember, Judas was an apostle. And after an immense amount of guilt, after he betrays Jesus, Judas goes and he kills himself. He commits suicide. And then in Acts chapter 1, before Pentecost, what we see are the 11 remaining disciples gathering together. And you know one of the things that they do after Jesus has ascended and before Pentecost? Gamble. (laughs) Sort of. They elect a new apostle. They look through all of the followers and they set forth this criteria. You need to have seen the resurrected Jesus and been commissioned by Jesus. And they come up with two men. And so what they do is they cast lots. They don't know which man to pick. So they cast lots. It lands on a man named Matthias, essentially saying, it doesn't matter who it lands on. Each one is going to be a great apostle. Lands on Matthias. And now you have 12 apostles yet again. And then Pentecost comes. So is that normative? Is that how we're supposed to do this? Are we supposed to still have 12 apostles today and pass these things down? That's what our our Catholic friends believe with Peter being the Pope. But then in Acts chapter 12, what we see is James, the brother of John. This is one of the sons of thunder, which is the greatest, one of the greatest nicknames in the New Testament. One of the inner core of Jesus' apostle, James, John, and Peter are with Jesus in a lot of, in the garden when there's three apostles sleeping, James is one of them. In the transfiguration, when they're taken up with Jesus, James is one of them. He's one of the three inner core apostles. And what we see is he's killed by Herod. And do you know what happens? They do not replace him. There's no indication in Scripture that James is ever replaced as an apostle. In fact, as the apostles die, there's no indication that any of them are ever replaced. What we see is this is a foundational office that God gave the church. It's not a permanent one. And even many charismatic brothers and sisters believe this. It's typically false teachers that will come to you. I'll get them every now and then. I don't know if you get them every now and then where somebody with apostle they put in front of their name saying, I'm apostle so-and-so, and God has given me a message, and I have authority over you because I'm apostle, so you need to let me do this, or you need to let me do that, or you need to give me money or whatever, and I typically just say, that's nonsense. Get away from me. Those people are not seeking the kingdom of God. They're seeking to make their own kingdoms, and you and I as loving Christians need to lovingly and firmly tell them about Jesus so that they might repent and believe. So we did it first, this office of apostle has ceased that God has given. Second, prophets. Prophets are distinct from teachers. Prophets do not seem to engage in the exegetical work of taking the word of God, prayerfully looking at it, and trying to apply it to the church. What we see prophets doing in the scripture is God giving them a word, and then they speak that word revelatory to other people. You see this in the Old Testament, and there's no reason to think why this would be any different in the New Testament prophets. And we see a few prophets in the book of Acts. As Agatha prophesies that Paul and Timothy will go on their missionary journey, that Paul's going to be in prison, that they're going to have rough waters, but that they will get there in the end but what we also see in the New Testament is so much of it is set out to try to distinguish false teachers from true teachers and so the apostles and the prophets before the word of God has has circulated and been written are given to the church so that they can help 
overcome these hurdles, help get the church started, help get the church going. Now, there are some that claim this is still an office that's active today. I do not believe it is. Maybe off in the foreign mission field where they have no gospel, they have no Bible written in their language, and nobody has heard it, that maybe prophecy could be active. But the problem with prophecy is you're saying it's a word from God, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, that it is God speaking through you to somebody else. And the issue with that is in the New Testament, repeatedly over and over, we've been told the canon is sealed, that God is not doing that. So if somebody comes to you and they say, God told me clear as day, and then whatever it is, we need to be careful. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to downplay emotions. I'm not trying to downplay uh, something. What I'm trying to do is be biblical. The Bible is very, very clear. To claim to offer a prophecy means you cannot error in that prophecy. So if you say this is a prophetic word from God and any portion of it is wrong, it is not a prophetic word from God, and you are a false prophet. That's what the Bible would call you. God's word does not lie. So the argument sometimes is, well, God's word doesn't lie, but it's the interpretation or it's the application of God's word that is in, it's not uh, infallible. But that can't be true because God uses the scriptures multiple times. It, fallible human beings were the ones God used to pen our letters. Paul sinned. Peter sinned. James sinned, John sinned, they're all human beings that God used, yet they didn't sin writing fallible words, they wrote the inerrant and fallible word of God. So God has closed the canon of scripture, there are no lost books of the Bible we haven't found yet, there are no Bible books that have not been written, all of the New Testament closes together. This is the secret underlying argument of why I wanted to name canon canon. Morgan had in mind a weapon, I had in mind the word of God. So what we see in the New Testament is the, the office of Apostle, capital A, is, is closed, that it has ceased. But if you remember Ephesians 2.20, built on the foundations of apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, if apostles in that list has ceased, and there's only two mentioned, then prophets have ceased as well in that area. Now I want to be very clear here also, that does not mean that God does not impress upon you things does not mean that God does not work upon you. It does not mean that God's not going to put somebody on your heart or teach you something or grow you something. It just simply means you're not going to hear an infallible word of God that's not written down in Scripture. I firmly believe that God will place people on your heart. And it's Him calling you to minister to them with the word. But that's just called love. Third, we have teachers. So teaching is different than prophecy. Teaching is taking the written word of God and exegetically diving into it, trying to expose the word of God so that everybody can see it, to apply it, to help interpret it, whether that's the Old Testament or the New Testament. Prophecy tends to be more uh, like um, specific and spontaneous, directed at certain occasions and events. You can read that in the scriptures. Teaching is not that way. Teaching is taking the word of God and applying it to our lives, interpreting it for us. Now, there is overlap in prophecy and teaching. They're both proclaiming things. They're both teaching things that are from the Lord. And prophets could be teachers, and teachers could be prophets. 
And we see this in Ephesians 4. And he himself uh, gave to some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors, teachers. So we see apostles cease. We see some prophets cease. When he says evangelists, that's just people who share the gospel. And in our context, we would probably call them missionaries, people who are going out and sharing the gospel with other people who have never heard the word. And then pastors, teachers is linked together. There's a complex stuff to, to clue us into that. But the Lord is still has pastors, teachers doing these things for us. This is how God is setting up his church. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the head of the body. Everything else within the body, within the church, he works to make sure it fits together the way it's supposed to fit together, which means you and I being here in Ira is not an accident. The gifts that you have and the gift that I have are not accidents. That God has placed us together here for mutual edification and for the glory of God as we spread the gospel here. So those are the foundation that God has set for us. But what about the other gifts mentioned? Miracles. This was a movie written about a hockey team. I'm just kidding. There's a lot of confusion as to what Paul is talking about here because there seems to be a lot of overlap with miracles and with healings. So probably what Paul is talking about is, is the exorcism of demons taking place here. Or maybe it's, it's more natural miracles like giving uh, uh, sight to the blind or, or something like that. But that kind of falls under the, the healing category. So to give an exact and narrow definition is really difficult of what Paul's talking about with miracles. But that, that might be the point. Right? He's, he's linking this with, with other things. He's saying these gifts are kind of more broad. They don't have these tight, rigid structures like we might want. We understand healings. Healings would be things like healing the sick, healing the disease, the blind, the lame, the deaf, all being able to, to do those things, and it's linked with miracles. I'm not saying God cannot do miracles, and I'm not saying that God cannot heal. What I am saying is those gifts have ceased. I'm not even saying you shouldn't pray for healing. If you come to my office and you say, I am sick with cancer, my prayer for you will be that the Lord will heal you. And we've seen that people have defied medical diagnoses, and we've seen those things taking place. But what we don't see are people running around as healers who are able to actually just heal somebody. There's a few who will claim that, but they will want you to pay them first. That's the old phrase, never trust a faith healer that wears glasses. Anytime we come to these texts like this, we have to decide if the text is describing what has happened or if it's prescribing how we should live. A lot of the stories, especially in the, the uh, historical genres like the Gospels and Acts, are going to tell us stories of healings, of miracles, of things taking place. And we look at that and we look at our life and we say, that just doesn't seem to be that way. So is it that we're missing something or is it that there's something else that's going on here? Are we supposed to do those things or is this something else that we're missing? What you'll see is not in one place in Scripture are you and I ever commanded to go heal someone. You will not find it. There's not one place in Scripture that says, go cast out the demons. There's not one place in Scripture that says, go do a miracle. You have some, like when Jesus tells the 70, you're going to go into the houses, you're going to tell about me coming, you're going to be able to do these things, and when they come back, they report back to Jesus. But that's not something Jesus commands everybody to do at all times. What Jesus commands us to do is to have faith in him, to trust in Christ, that when bad times happen, maybe the Lord is sending us through those things for our good and for his glory. That those miraculous gifts were meant to be a sign. 
to show that those who were doing them were speaking truth. They were meant to point you to Jesus. See, I think one of the things we misunderstand with Scripture is we think in the Bible when someone's healed that they're saved. That's not true. Luke 17, verse 11, while traveling to Jerusalem, he passed between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village, and ten men with leprosy met him, and they stood at a distance, and raising their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on them, on us. And when he saw them, he told them, go, show yourself to the priests, and while they were going, they were cleansed. One of them, seeing that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down at his feet, thanking them, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus said, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Didn't any give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. Just because someone is healed in the scripture does not mean that they become a believer. Helping is the next list, uh, the, the next gift listed. The only appearance of this word in the New Testament. And it is so vague. What is the, the gift of helping? Could have listed anything. Could have said, helping where? In the kitchen, in the nursery. Like, well, where are we helping at? He doesn't say where. He just says helping. That makes it such a beautiful and such an easy gift that God can give. What's your gift? I don't know. I just want to help. That's your gift. You don't need the spotlight. You don't need the teaching role. You don't know. uh, I just need a place to go, a place to serve. Where can I help? How can I help? The next gift is is leading, which sometimes is translated guidance or administration. And it's, it's a verbal form of a noun. And the noun means like a pilot or a sea captain. So it's the person driving the boat who's guiding, who's getting everybody in the right direction and making sure that everybody on the boat is not falling overboard or not sick or or taken care of and guiding the boat in the right direction. And then Paul says various kinds of tongues. This gift is interesting, and it's interesting what Paul is doing. This is the gift that the Corinthians thought was the best gift to have. They elevated this gift above all the other gifts, and we'll see that when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. Actually, we'll see it next week when we talk about 1 Corinthians 13. And so what Paul does is he leaves it at the last of the list. It's as if he's saying, all of these gifts are great and important. Oh, yeah, and there's tongues. So what is tongues? Acts chapter 2 is the first indication of tongues in the Bible, and it takes place at Pentecost. And I read Acts chapter 2 a couple weeks ago, so I won't read it again, but you should read it. It's very clear what Paul is talking about when he's talking about tongues. It's different languages and different dialects. You have all of these people who are gathered together in Jerusalem who don't speak the same language. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes, and they're hearing the apostles preach the gospel, and they're hearing it in their language, and not only in their language, they're hearing it in their dialect, which means, like, if it happens now, we would hear English, and we would hear it with a twang. There's no indication in the scripture that speaking in tongues changes over the course of the New Testament. So this means it's not jibber-jabber. It is an actual language that God has given you. And if it's a gift, it's something you don't have to work at. It's something that you just get. I went to school at at Oklahoma Baptist University. 
Um, our mascot was the bison, still is, and there was a school yell, and this is really weird, and OBU's small enough, you've never heard of this, I'm sure, unless you went to another small little Christian school and played OBU, but this yell was a yell we would all do, and it makes no sense, it's called Carip, and the only, they got us to memorize it, I don't know how they got the girls to memorize it, for the boys, they put it above the urinal, every boy had it memorized, so it goes, Carip, Carap, Carip, Tipla, Tap, Oh, Oh, Ring, Tilling, Tilling, Hi, Totem, Hoppy, Let's Skip, Copy, Got, Us, Cheek, Delight, Chink, Delight, Quill, Quality, Victory, Oh, Oh, Hoogly, Chugly, Chugly, Can, Raggy, Tag, Vanilla, Command, Let a Grip, Let a Gross, Tingy, Tangle, Turn, Loose, Zip, Bang, OBU. It sounds weird, but imagine a whole stadium of people yelling that in the middle of a game. You'll miss a free throw. There's a story a professor told of a guy who got pinned down by some guys and they would not let this man leave until he spoke in tongues as a sign that he was a believer. And so what that OBU grad did was he did Carip. And he got to leave. <laughs> there is no indication that it changes throughout the scripture, that it's the same thing in Acts chapter 2 that it would be that Paul is talking about here. So, we talk about all of these gifts, we see all of these things, and as we continue to walk through 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to talk a lot more about those, especially prophecy and especially tongues. So look what Paul says in verse 29. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all do miracles, do all have the gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, but desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. So not everyone has everything, and no one has nothing. Some of the gifts have ceased. Some of the gifts are no longer around. And Paul finishes with this phrase, desire the greater gifts. And so it seems odd that if Paul's talking about unity, if Paul's talking about equality within the body, right, diversity but unity, right? Everybody has a role to play. Everybody has different things to do, and everybody matters, and everybody's valued here, that it seems weird that Paul would say, but you need to desire the greater gifts. This gift that's given to you that you can't earn, that you can't get, that God gives to you and, and gives at will as according to his will. Is Paul contradicting himself? No. And 1 Corinthians 14 is largely about this. The greater gifts are the gifts that help build up the church. And we'll delve, delve into that in a few weeks when we get to that passage. What Paul's getting at, the main point of this, is that no one has a right to boast in the gifts that they've been given simply because they're different gifts than other people. That misses the point of the passage completely. It's not about the miraculous being greater than the ordinary. It's about Jesus being better than anyone else. This is, I think, the struggle. Because sometimes in the midst of ordinary life, we'll get complacent or we simply kind of get bored. And so we read stories from the Bible, and we look at the great miracles taking place, how Elijah calls down fire from heaven, or, or whatever story it is that captivates our imagination, how there's three that are put into the fire, but then there's one another one, or, or Daniel sleeping with the lions and doesn't get eaten, or we see the apostles and Peter in the, in the uh, prison singing hymns, and the gates shatter and shackle, or we see walls, we see all of these things. When we read the text of Scripture, we see the dead being raised, we see bleeding stop, we see those who are unclean being made clean, we see the lame being able to walk. We see all of that stuff, and then we look at our life, and we go, I'm doing something wrong. I just can't do those things. I don't see those things. 
We have this desire, this, this noble and this good desire to do great things for God, but then we look and we go, my life just doesn't look like what I think it should look like when I read the scriptures. I'll, I'll wake up and, and, I, and I try to remember to pray and I try to remember to read my Bible and sometimes I do better than other times at those things. And I go to work and I work hard or, or I stay home and, and raise kids or I serve in the church in various ways and I spend time with my family. And we have these, this simple life, but it's our life and we love this life that we've created. But where is all the supernatural that's supposed to take place in our life if it looks like what the scripture's saying? And so we do what most people do. We turn to Google. Or you turn to a celebrity pastor who tells you something along the lines of, if you had more faith, you could do those things. Or you're holding God back. Or as one prominent celebrity pastor, and he's so popular, if I told you his name in his church, you'd be upset at me, probably more than him, said this, quote, the only thing God cannot do is overcome your unbelief, end quote. You're telling me that the sovereign creator of the universe is limited to what I believe and what I don't believe. Or we'll turn on the radio and we'll hear songs that move us emotionally. Or we'll look up churches and see that they're doing all sorts of things that feel like they're the New Testament kind of things. They're, they're lengthening legs and the, the people who are sick are being healed and it just looks like all of this stuff is taking place. They look more spiritual than we are. So we go down this rabbit trail trying to find something that makes us feel more Christian. And I've, brother, sister, I've watched this happen over and over and over again to former students, to colleagues, and to friends who get caught up in this trap of thinking they have to do these things to be believers in Jesus. And what ends up happening every single time is when they come to their senses, they're left empty and they're left deceived, less trusting in Jesus. Because the emotions fade. And the moment changes, and what's left is a works-based religion. They use Bible words, but they mean different things. Do you know that Satan and the demons would be absolutely, completely satisfied if you and I claimed to worship Jesus, but we don't open our Bible? Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. And on that day they will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we do many miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Isn't it easy? Isn't it interesting what Jesus is saying here? They say, we prophesied in the name of Jesus, so we know we're Christians. We drove out demons in the name of Jesus, so we know that we're Christians. We did miracles in the name of Jesus so that we know we're Christians and they end up in hell because they do not know Jesus. You will not find commands to do those things in scriptures. Instead, what you'll find is to completely and totally trust in Jesus Christ with everything that you possibly have. You cannot have a backup plan. We read God's word. We pray. Be involved in the church. Raise your family in the gospel. Share your faith. Be a disciple maker. Be a disciple. You know the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? 
You have a rich man who, who has Lazarus' servant, and he treats him really bad, and then they both die, and, and they're, they're in, uh, uh, the rich man is in hell, and Lazarus is in heaven, and Lazarus is uh, walking with, with Abraham. And, and you see the rich man yelling out to Lazarus, or yelling out to Abraham, have him dip his, his finger in the water just to come quench my tongue. And, and, and Abraham says, no. You had your reward on earth. He didn't, and now he gets his reward now, and that's your reward there. And so the rich man pleads with Abraham. He says, well, go and tell my family. Go tell my kids these things. Do you know what the rich man, or what Abraham replies? Luke 16, 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone goes, uh, someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Do you know what we're being told there in the parable? The miraculous doesn't save you. It's the word of God that does. Think about the first Christmas. Two rural teenagers never sought out the situation that they find themselves in. There's a song uh, called Labor of Love by, by Andrew Peterson. I'm going to read the lyrics because he describes it a lot better than I do. He says, quote, It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of David's town. The stable was not clean, and the cobblestones were cold, and little Mary, full of grace, with tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. It was a labor of pain. It was a cold sky above. But for the girl on the ground in the dark, with every beat of her beautiful heart, it was a labor of love. Noble Joseph by her side, calloused hands and weary eyes. There were no midwives to be found on the streets of David's town in the middle of the night. So he held her and he prayed, shafts of moonlight on his face. But the baby in the womb was the maker of the moon. He was the author of the faith that could move, make the mountains move. We think about the miraculous and we think about the supernatural and we look at our lives and we think, I just have to do those things. If I could have that stuff, if I could be that way, then I would be a better Christian. I would be, and, and maybe it's a noble thing. I want to do those things for the Lord and do those good things. But what we see repeatedly taking place in Scripture is God places you and I in ordinary situations to exercise our faith. God could have come to the earth in any way that he possibly wanted to. It's telling that Jesus comes the way that he does. He could have come in the womb of a queen. He could have come in the womb of someone who was rich and who was noble, who had nurses, who had midwives. He could have come to someone who had power and who had authority on the earth. He could have, why does he need to come as a baby? He could have come as God. He could have descended from heaven with angels playing the trumpets as he marches his way down the coming of God. There's an infinite number of ways that God could have come to earth. Instead, what we see is Jesus comes not as someone who is noble and powerful, but he comes in what has to be the most humble and insignificant ways that we could possibly imagine. Two rural teenagers in a barn with more animals to watch the birth of the Son of God than human beings. And the first visitors that show up are dirty, nasty shepherds. They did not have a frozen lasagna for Mary to heat up later. But that's how God so often works. 
It's not in the spotlight. It's not on the TV. It's in the ordinary and it's in the mundane. The author of salvation who planned these things from before time began did not forget to book a room at the inn for Mary and Joseph. It was intentional. This is why we can look at our lives and say, man, I can't do the miraculous things like Elijah or, or Moses or, or Peter or John or, or Paul in the scriptures. And it's okay. We don't have to be ashamed of that. What the Lord has given you and I is this life. He didn't call you to be Paul. He didn't call you to be Peter. He didn't call you to be Elijah. He didn't call you to be Moses. He calls you to be you and to live your life with your family and to live your life in the place he's given you to live it, to grow in Christ, to trust in the gospel, to lean into the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ comes as a baby, that at the same time he's nursing his mother, he is holding the stars in place in the sky. That God comes to us in the flesh. And God comes to us because you and I, we cannot get to God. And he could have come any possible way that he wanted to. And he comes in humility. And he comes in grace. And he comes to two rural teenagers who don't even have a social media account. Your faith, if it's a faith that's biblical, is far more than emotionalism. It's far more than feelings. faith where God works is often in those still small normal moments of life it's the car rides it's work it's the random stillness that happens throughout the day what this text is telling us is it's reminding us that God uses us we do not get to use God and that he has placed us together, us of all people. And that if all we have is Christ, then brothers and sisters, we have far more than enough. That the baby in the manger grows up and he never sins. He's sinless. It is mind-numbingly hard for me to imagine a toddler not sinning. Yet he never does. He never backtalks his mom, never disrespects his dad, never lies. And he goes to the cross to die for our sin. And God the Father accepts God the Son's sacrifice because God the Son, Jesus, is sinless. That he bears the wrath that you and I deserve for our sin because God loves us more and deeper than we could ever imagine. And he loves us not because we bring any value to God. Jesus doesn't go... You can do miracles, come to my team. He doesn't look at us and go, you can speak in tongues, get over here. He doesn't say you can heal people, I've got a whole slew of them over here, come on. He doesn't say you can prophesy, awesome, get over here. No, what he says is, you need me. That I can make you into something, and that something is going to be something that worships me. He says, I love you, not because you bring anything to the table or because you're somebody special or powerful or important. I love you because you're mine. This is phenomenal, and it's miraculous, and it's all wrapped up in the ordinary, the mundane. 
Like even the crucifixion was not that out of the normal for the Romans. There were two other prisoners that were crucified that day. The people knew the process. They were knew what was going on. Yet in the midst of all of that, God works in the ordinary. So don't let the false teachers deceive you into thinking that you have to be somebody or to do something extraordinary to prove God. Don't let materialistic ideologies deceive you into thinking that Christmas is about the things under the tree or the decorations in the house or the amount of oatmeal cream pies you can shove in your face before your wife catches you. Don't let the social media influencers, which is such a dumb thing, deceive you into thinking about building experiences rather than gifts at Christmas. Don't be deceived. Christmas is about God coming to rescue us. Christmas is about God doing the work. Christmas is about God getting the glory. It's about God. It's about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, I thank you that you don't depend on us for the miraculous. You don't depend on us for the supernatural. You don't depend on us for all of those things, God. You don't depend on us, period. 